0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information. But don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: Oh, it's finals week.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't like how you laughed right then. That was a little too much pleasure, I think. <laughs>
1: I, I don't miss taking them, and I don't miss grading them.
0: Oh, man. I know. I don't. I get no sympathy when I say, but students, I have to grade them. Don't you feel sorry for me? <laughs> and they don't
1: realize that's the worst end of that deal. It
0: is. I know. I finally, what I've started saying, because I think it gets through a little better, is, look, I know you hated question number nine, but I have to hate it 35 times while I'm grading it right (laughs) and I think that gets it across and I'm like "Ooh, yeah that sucks (laughs) yeah so yeah that's how I am Mm -hmm.
1: all right Uh, how how are
0: you doing not grading finals
1: (laughs) I'm doing good I'm staying pretty busy I'm building a robot or actually two robots this week
0: Um, I don't do I even want to know are these AI what have you what have you been doing (laughs)
1: But one is another paleomagnetic sample handler for another paleomagnetic slab.
0: You're cheating on me?
1: (laughs) So it's pretty much a copy-paste of what I built for you.
0: Mm, Uh, All right. Is it going a lot faster the second time around?
1: Yeah, I mean, I already had all the documentation and all the designs done, so I'm able to do it a little bit faster. And this time I'm actually machining all the parts for two of them at once.
0: That's Oh, that's right. Okay. Because mm-hmm. uh, I so think got that was some... a lot of... I mean, when you have to wait on all these other people to do stuff, that really takes time out of your planning period and building periods, right?
1: Yeah, and so I'm going ahead and making the parts. So, you know, one, I've got some hot spares on the shelf in case you call me and say that something broke. <laughs> uh, and then if a third lab wants a machine, I really only have to order the electrical components. Nice. And all the machining's done. And, you know, when you're machining things probably half the time or more especially on a cnc machine is in setting up the part
0: gotcha so once i've already got the
1: setup done it's really like put another piece of metal in and hit go again
0: gotcha well nice um
1: and you know so i've also been reading uh, we got quite a bit of feedback as compared to a normal show (laughs) last week and (laughs) it was all about how uneasy the Choya paper made people
0: (laughs) That makes me feel so much better. (laughs) Uh, In
1: fact, we had one person, Alexander, wrote in uh, to say that he enjoys the show very much. So thank you. And he wanted to tell us that in the Pacific Northwest, they have a plant called Devil's Club, which is kind of a woody plant that has lots of spines on it. And he said, it's always the first thing that you hit when you fall down and grab blindly. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it has spines all around the stem and leaves that will break off in your skin and stay there for months
0: oh. and that
1: sounded like the voice of experience
0: <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh oh, that sucks hey there are these cactuses too we didn't even talk about this i was too upset to even say anything <laughs> these cactuses in australia that actually shoot their needles at you
1: yeah that's amazing that's
0: right you let that sink in because you know we joke that they're they are sentient beings but those really are and so you can be like a couple of millimeters i don't know exactly what it is away from it and it'll actually project its spines into you
1: wow yeah just let that course it's in australia
0: of course it is where everything else is also trying to kill you (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) so yeah
1: (laughs) All right. Uh, So, yeah, if you've got some uh, some more cactus feedback for us, keep that coming. And we also got some sticker requests, so don't forget, if you don't have Don't Panic stickers and want to adorn your local everything, (laughs) uh, we'll be happy to send you an envelope of them.
0: Absolutely.
1: So I think we're going to move on to the penultimate installment in our climate (laughs) series.
0: You know, I... Yes, you're correct. I always thought the word penultimate meant the, like, ultimate more than the ultimate until maybe, I don't know, a couple of years ago. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so that really threw me for a loop right there. But you're correct, the penultimate. <laughs> um, because we're just going to talk today about the Mesozoic. I'm going to save the whole Cenozoic era for its own show because it's really quite a different time period but not just the mesozoic but particularly the cretaceous because it's real freaky
1: right so (laughs) (laughs) this is also i mean we're getting recent enough that if you look at a map of what the land looked like during this period it sort of resembles modern continental layout
0: So we ended last time talking about the Permian and Pangaea. And so Pangaea starts to break up as we go into the Mesozoic, which is composed of the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous. And it's the age of dinosaurs, right? Um, (laughs) So as Pangaea starts to break up, you're right. It starts to break up into these continents that you can pretty much identify. I mean, towards the beginning of the Mesozoic, there's still a lot of stuff down in the Southern Hemisphere. You know, like Australia is still kind of attached um, but everything else, you can really see the outlines of what we're going to become as they start to spread apart.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is, I mean, modern, sure. Uh, so sixty-five to one hundred and forty-five million years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it's getting more modern. Um, what's so besides the whole fact that there are dinosaurs, right? <laughs> I mean, the actual Cretaceous world still looked a lot different than than today. And what the really interesting thing is is we talk so much about CO2 being a driver for climate change. And I think something that I am not a climate denier. I want to say this out loud before I say this next sentence, right? Right. <laughs> um but CO2 today today is really low. Like really low. <laughs> Because back in the Mesozoic, it was crazy high, (laughs) like almost 10 times as high as it is today.
1: But at the same time, we'll point out that there was no ice and an average of several hundred meters above average sea level. Right. during this period as well.
0: Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. So even though today our our CO2 levels are really low compared to the past, um, it's still a lot different. And also when they got really high, those CO2 levels, they didn't do so at the rate that we're getting to now, which we'll talk about next week in the ultimate <laughs> climate talk (laughs) um and so but that's one thing that we want to look at because the last time really that earth didn't have ice anywhere was probably in the cretaceous and that's worth looking at because we're kind of headed that direction and so i said that it was you know 10 times so we're talking two three thousand maybe PPM CO2, and today we're... Well, last week we were at 408, I think, is what we were at. So, yeah.
1: Right, but like I said, also, it's a lot hotter, and you have basically the same life forms living everywhere from the equator to about, you know, 80 degrees.
0: Right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Latitude. Yes, Uh, (laughs) that's exactly right. (laughs) So that's something that's so weird about the Cretaceous, and one of the reasons that we know that it was so hot um, was, just like you said, you had the same life forms that lived... From the equator all the way up, you know, we call it the furry alligator problem because there are alligators that have been found in Greenland during this time, so how do they they live there, you know? I I,
1: I had to jump ahead right to that because it's got the best name of any (laughs) paradox, the furry alligator problem. I know.
0: It's so great. I thought faint young sun was kind of funny, but no. (laughs) Furry alligator is totally the best. Um, And so... Through a lot of different climate proxies, which we're gonna talk about, um, this climate was the same everywhere, from the equator to the pole. It's what we call an equable climate, not to be confused with equitable. <laughs> so I know that's kind of semantic, it's not, it's spelling too. <laughs> but equable meaning it's the same everywhere, okay? Uh, <laughs> as one of my students pointed out in my final, it's communism, but for temperature. <laughs> <laughs> and apparent, apparently I said that in class And I, I laughed really hard at it I'm like that's brilliant <laughs> Came out of my mouth So <laughs> Communism for temperature um, And this is because just like you said John We find the same fossils At the equator and then we find those At really high latitudes As well both north and south um, And not just Animals but plants And plants are real picky I mean, animals are too, but plants are really picky. And so we had these tropical plants at all latitudes up to, you know, 80, 85 degrees. We had coal forming at those high latitudes, which you can't do in really cold climates. Uh, Bauxite, which being from Arkansas, you should be familiar with this thing.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Aluminum.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And so bauxite weathers and it's has to be in these, you know, it's got to have a lot of water and sort of a temperate climate to create bauxite. And so you find these bauxite deposits at high latitudes, too. And when I say tropical plants, I mean, we're talking about palm trees. There are palm trees in southern Alaska at this time.
1: Right, which is crazy if you actually stop and think about it. (laughs)
0: Right, exactly. Like, you know, because we think about our belts of, you know, things ecosystems aren't that wide and so this isn't just land but there's also a more equable sea surface well not just sea surface temperature gradient in the ocean both at the bottom and the top and so this presents a lot of problems and this is kind of the problem in quotation marks there Is because how do you do this, (laughs) and what does it mean? And how do we know sea surface and sea bottom temperatures were that different? And this is where we have to go back to some of those proxies for temperature. And in this case, it means those little benthic and planktonic forams.
1: Right, so they have a temperature range that they prefer to live in, so when you find them, you know what the temperature range had to be at that time.
0: Right, or if you kill them, you know that the temperature range had to be (laughs) too hot or too cold for them. Um, (laughs) So those little guys are a big part of this too. Um, And also coral reefs. Um, We had coral reefs that went up to 40 degrees latitude. And so where is that? That's um, somewhere like Southern Michigan, something like that, a little bit south of that. I don't know. I live at 35, so I don't think about these things. but Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so corals extending either way from there. So it's this very spread out climate. It's kind of the same everywhere. Um, and the sea is a big part of this because what we have now in the ocean, we call it the thermohaline circulation. And o- ocean circulation drives so much of life cycles – the planet and so much of climate and everything like that so when you start to change ocean circulation it's a weird deal and as Pangea ripped apart you started to open up certain pathways right Um, because we had one big supercontinent, and then you start ripping them all up so you open up a whole bunch of different ocean pathways um, and it creates a big circulation so today the ocean works on this thing called the thermohaline circulation so at the equator You've got water that's getting really hot, right? And because the Earth wants to even everything out, that hot water, as it moves northward to the poles, cools down, right? That cool water sinks. And what is ice made of? All the ice at the poles, is it salty or fresh water?
1: It's fresh.
0: That's right. And so you get cold, salty water, which is more dense, Then that sinks down, and then it heads on its trip back to the equator, and that sets up the overall huge ocean circulation. It actually takes a particle, molecule, whatever you want to say, a thousand years to create or to make its way on this loop. And so that's that's how we spread heat throughout the world, right? But in the Cretaceous, since everything was warm this is really strange. How do we circulate the oceans? What happens to the climate? Why is this happening?
1: <laughs> well, and you know, you, you pointed out that there's not only temperature, but density differences based on salt that are driving this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ocean does have sort of its own weather.
0: right? Uh, yes. You know,
1: I mean, you can have pressure systems and that sort of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually a pretty interesting analog for the atmosphere and the, ocean-atmosphere interaction is still something that people study heavily today because we don't totally understand it.
0: Right, exactly. So one of these problems in the Cretaceous is you still had you still had water that was flowing. It was sluggish, but it was still flowing. And I said that there was a temperature difference because we know this because of those benthic forams you were talking about. Um, but the temperature differences were a lot less um, between the surface and the bottom waters so today the bottom water is four degrees celsius something like that uh and in the cretaceous it was like 15 to 20 degrees celsius
1: which is really yeah. really high yeah so i mean two <laughs> to four celsius is sort of the magic number uh for deep gulf deep ocean trench that kind of thing right uh, yeah. and to be 15 to 20 and then have the surface pushing 30 in places.
0: Yes, exactly. And so that's only a temperature difference of, you know, 15 to 20, which is significantly less than it is today between the surface and the bottom waters. So that takes that thermo part of the thermohaline circulation out of play. And so something weird was happening basically with the ocean weather, just like you said, because, you know, there was still ocean circulation. So What drove it? Was it just salinity? Was it just sort of a haline circulation? That's kind of weird to think about.
1: Well, and it's even weirder because there's no ice.
0: Right, exactly. So how do you change the salinity then? If you're not locking up all this fresh water in ice, how do you get that difference? Right. We don't know the answer, so I guess see you next week. (laughs) Well, and it's also
1: mirror that and look up. Now you're looking at the atmosphere. How do you get atmospheric circulation when you have basically the same temperature from the equator to 80 north?
0: Right. Ex- yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's it's real strange. And so uh, we call this time period the Cretaceous Hothouse for obvious reasons. Right. Um, and these high temperatures in both the land and the sea, you know, we got rid of all this ice. It definitely affected you know what could live and die and probably is why the dinosaurs started to die out but that's a that's another we'll talk about that towards the end <laughs> but I mean how did we get so hot
1: yeah like so, it
0: was real weird but how did we get there in the first place
1: well the, the first way you might say is well co2 and we've talked about how to get more co2 before You know, maybe you have enhanced volcanism or enhanced spreading rates at mid-ocean ridges, Mm -hmm. which, sure, we are in a time of high plate spreading rate here, but Mm -hmm. it's not enough.
0: Right. Um, So that's sort of one of those atmospheric drivers is very frequently called upon is this thing called the blag hypothesis. Um, And that's that as you increase ocean ridge spreading I mean that is volcanism and so you could do crazy stuff like acidify the oceans with all that co2 and then all the extra co2 goes into the air you know and but if you do that you should have more subduction right because if you're making it you got to get rid of the crust and that would sequester co2 so that's one of the reasons that those increased spreading rate answer isn't always the best for high co2 but like the answer always volcanoes are probably a good one to right (laughs) to bring yeah like you can always just make volcanoes do it and that could be one of it because we had a lot of volcanism at this time in the form of these large igneous provinces or lips which is hilarious (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Maybe right. it's just me because <laughs> they call them this. And so it's really funny to see, you know, very prominent geologists talking about lips all the time. But um, these large igneous provinces, which are these huge areas like the Deccan Traps, um, the Siberian Traps that are just spewing out not only tons of rocks, but also tons of CO2. And so this is going on for a really long time during uh, the Mesozoic too. And that generates a whole lot.
1: Oh, yes. Uh, It's also worth noting that it's not only igneous rocks that were forming during the Mesozoic. It's also when an incredible amount of what today we would call a source rock, where we pull out petroleum products.
0: Yeah. Uh, A lot of those (laughs) were
1: formed during this time as well.
0: I mean, an incredible amount. You're exactly right. Actually, it's... It's nuts because if you add it up, it's almost 40%, right? That's crazy. Uh,
1: well, so in the Mesozoic alone, it's, uh, let's see, look at the numbers right now, it's about 54%. Oh,
0: it is 54%. Mm, yeah, I can't imagine. And, that, and that's
1: <laughs> ignoring some of the smaller like 1% uh, formations <laughs> there. But yes, I mean, during this time of you know Paleozoic, Mesozoic, Cenozoic, we're talking about three quarters of our petroleum reserves forming Mm -hmm. in in this relatively short span of three four hundred million years
0: that's that's so crazy um and so i guess you know you've got these really juicy oceans (laughs) you've got a whole lot of carbonate factories happening
1: that's interesting. Yeah. And oh, actually, if you, if you add it up, uh, if you tack on a couple more time periods, so we go from the Precambrian all the way through the Cenozoic, it's 91.5% Crazy. of our reserves. Yeah. yeah. That's... Uh, so well, we're doing lots of things. And, you know, of course, hydrocarbons. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a very high exchange of carbon going on in the entire Earth system
0: uh-huh. during
1: these time periods. Uh, so That's right. So it's, it's a nightmare to try to model the climate.
0: Oh, right. And something we haven't even talked about yet, you've already uh, said it earlier, but sea level, crazy high.
1: Yeah, like 300 meters above what it was at the last glacial.
0: Yeah, exactly. So crazy high. And what that does with all that water is it's got to go somewhere. And so it goes up on land. And these are these things that we call a seas. Um, And if you're from anywhere out west, I'm sure you've heard of it. We had a pretty famous Epiric Sea that was basically from uh, northern, well, no, it was definitely from northern, that was basically from, you know, Montana all the way down in various degrees as the sea level rose, called the Western Interior Cretaceous Seaway, or the Wicks, as it's famously called. There's a whole bunch of dinosaurs that lived right along it went right through your state. Of Colorado. Right. Um, and so <laughs> you've got these shallow oceans that have been driven up onto the continents. Tons and tons of shale deposited in these areas. Right. So those big Epiric seas, I mean, basically, if you make more ocean basin, you're going to deposit more ocean rock. And that's where you get all the reservoirs. So that's why this time period, man, that's crazy. Over 50%, 54% of all the petroleum source rocks were formed during this time. And a lot of that, of that 54%, 29% of it was during this specific mid-Cretaceous hothouse.
1: Right. And, you know, I do think that 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 definitely has something to do with the fact that you just have the right climate to do it over so much of the globe. Right. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you were 20C all the way up to... 70 and change in terms of degrees latitude. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's unbelievable. Um, And so just like you said, this is really hard to model. (laughs) And there are lots of problems with it Um, (laughs) because we can't explain. We can't explain why it got this hot, you know, because what was providing all this heat transport? If you shut down the thermohaline circulations in the oceans and you're just sitting there cooking well, that couldn't happen because what modern climate models, when we're looking back at their Cretaceous do is if they get the right temperatures at the poles, they wind up overheating the tropics. And so we know that didn't happen because we still had things living in the tropics. You know, we know that from fossil evidence. So there's actually something, this is kind of weird to me, but also strangely comforting that there's still questions, um, is that we can't model this climate. We can't model what that mid-Cretaceous hothouse really sort of looked like because of these issues.
1: Right. And, I mean, you do still have to remember, though, that even though there may have been more CO2, the atmospheric composition still wasn't the same. This is still 100 million years ago.
0: Yeah, I always really forget that. I'm not going to lie.
1: <laughs> and that's one of the things that, well, we can't model it a lot differently because we don't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, In- <laughs> we have we have some ideas from trapped gases and ices, and I'm not saying they're bad ideas. I think they're pretty decent ideas. But when you're doing any kind of climate modeling, and you know, climate modeling out for 50 years or 100 years is one thing. Climate modeling through a hundred million years, I mean, percent <laughs> changes can make huge differences.
0: Uh, yeah, and when you talk about, you can't even really model the weather three days out as was evidenced by our ice storm that didn't happen last week. Um, <laughs> one of the things that they think could be affecting this and why the models aren't working is because clouds could play a large part in this.
1: Right. And clouds are one of those things that, you know, we, so client modeling and weather modeling are vastly different. Yes. Weather modeling just smooths out all the pesky things like storms that, even lasts on a month time scale. Yes. Uh, which is fine because it's climate. But clouds and modeling the distribution of clouds, the average distribution of clouds, is something that's hard to do today, much less in an atmosphere that we don't know anything about the aerosols that were in it.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. Which maybe that makes it a good thing to invoke. Right, (laughs) you can blame
1: it on the thing you can't prove, sure.
0: Right, exactly. (laughs) But I mean, that's true. So you've got all this increased volcanism, you know, maybe the way that you're forming clouds, because whether clouds have big droplets or small droplets changes their albedo, right? And so whether you have, you know, super tiny droplets or really big ones, the way they reflect solar radiation is different. And so you're not only whether you have clouds, but the type of clouds you have can do a lot to change uh, your surface temperatures, too.
1: And this is purely me hypothesizing while thinking about this. This is not published literature, so don't take it as as the truth. But uh, let's do a thought experiment of, okay, the oceans have a very small temperature gradient. Let's say that is a reflect in the atmosphere the whole 10 degrees per kilometer thing is right out the window. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we have an atmosphere that has a very small temperature gradient vertically as well as horizontally. That means accelerations due to temperature differences are going to be small, Mm -hmm. which means it's going to be very hard to drive a deep convective storm because Mm -hmm. you don't have accelerations. So would that mean that you get large regions of stratiform clouds versus isolated tall storms?
0: Maybe. That's interesting.
1: Like, I mean, the atmosphere, we can't model the clouds. Not only do we not know about a lot of things about the atmosphere, but the temperature structure of the atmosphere was very likely totally different.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, just like the temperature structure of the of the ocean at that time.
1: Right. And exactly that, that, the same. that changing gradient could radically alter the way that transport happens. Though you're kind of presented with a problem here of this... Uh, very even temperature across the globe means there's not a lot of transport. But to get that even temperature, you need vigorous transport.
0: <laughs> right. So yeah, ex- ex- exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the same problem we have when trying to figure out yeah those ocean differences too. You know, you're like, oh, we have a lot of heat transport. That's why the poles got hot. Well, you don't because you shut that down as soon as you get a smaller temperature gradient. So,
1: and yeah. th- this is. This is one of the things that I enjoy talking about and debating because Lee Kump, who is the department chair, and Dave Pollard, who is a member of the Penn State Ice Group that I was also a member of, have published extensively in this field. (laughs) Uh, So I got to hear lots of lectures on it from
0: them. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, this is, I mean, this is very difficult stuff um, because, yeah, you can't, can't even forecast the weather three days away. So how are you going to figure this out? (laughs) Right. Um I guess one more thing to say, I mean there's probably a lot more things to say. One more thing to say about this whole increased seafloor spreading thing that we didn't talk about yet was during because it's specific to the Cretaceous, not just the black hypothesis is that when you have more subduction it really does matter what you're subducting. And so during the Cretaceous, and this was pretty recent, well, 2013, um, article about this, that said you had more continental arcs involved in this subduction. So you're subducting oceanic crust under these continental crusts. And when you do that, you're actually going to melt a whole lot more carbonate rocks because these continental rocks are made up of a bunch of carbonates And that decarbonation pumps tons more CO2 into the atmosphere than you would in, say, like an oceanic arc subduction zone. I thought that was really interesting.
1: It is. And actually something that we should talk about sometime on the show is carbonate volcanoes. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) Yeah, that's weird.
0: (laughs) That's a very strange thing. Um, That's just I didn't want that to go unnoted um, as a potential co2 increase during this time um because every little bit counts
1: (laughs) absolutely so i mean sort of there you go that's the last hothouse and it could be the future of earth and if earth does get that hot uh it's going to get very difficult for as many people as we have now to exist
0: uh right yeah exactly because you have to remember you're like oh okay well that's fine three thousand ppm co2 stuff was alive nothing that looks like today was alive
1: <laughs> right and we hadn't built buildings on every square meter of land
0: uh yeah that's a problem too so you're saying that how we subduct buildings is going to change the co2 output
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see what your yeah. carbon
1: neutral building does when it's subducted
0: that's right <laughs> um yeah, so how we get out of this, I mean, that's the exciting part, right? So we'll talk about the beginning of the Cenozoic um, next time. And there's a better analog. This is the last time we were ice-free everywhere, probably. But there's also a closer-in-time analog to what we may be doing to the climate. But I will leave that as a cliffhanger for uh, our, our final climate installment.
1: Yes, so keep treading water until next week when we oh. suck some of that back <laughs> up into ice. <laughs> or watch the movie Waterworld, world but
0: uh, oh that's too old people don't get that one anymore we had to stop <laughs> actually making references to that about five <laughs> years ago in class
1: <laughs> yeah I
0: know. betraying your age John. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of ages
1: <laughs> and on how humans are impacting the geologic record
0: that's right. it's time
1: for everybody's favorite segment of the show Fun Paper Friday! Yay! Cowbell was a little bit further out of reach than I intended (laughs) to.
0: That's nice, but it's still there. You got it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so you found this paper, and I absolutely love it.
0: Oh, man. I thought this was right up our alley, really. (laughs) Uh, To stick with our chicken theme of obsession for fun papers, Um, this is a really new publication. actually just came out two days ago, one day ago right um in the royal society open science online journal it's the broiler chicken as a signal of a human reconfigured biosphere by bennett et al
1: which if you had to do this in an upgoer 5 fashion it would be something <laughs> like future scientists will find our chicken bones <laughs>
0: And they're, they're different than old chicken bones, so that's, that's why they're important.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh.
0: <laughs> so I don't know if we've talked about the Anthropocene on here, or the Anthropocene, as Brits say it, much more cooler than we do.
1: Right. I don't think we have extensively. Maybe we've mentioned it once or twice in you know, almost 200 shows now.
0: Yeah, which is, well, I'll put it down on the list because we're definitely going to have to have a show on this. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, we're marching our way through geologic time again, as we sort of seem to do. And this is a big deal because we're talking about a time period that's marked by humans. That's what Anthropocene means, right? And we're actually, a lot of scientists are trying to get this changed into a new epoch, meaning that, well, defined by what because each epoch is defined by something either a meteorite impacts or you know there's an abrupt shift in climate due to something or volcano and so the Anthropocene is like what humans have done like we've basically entered a new geologic era because we are changing the earth and you can document it and that's what this is about you can document it by chickens
1: right (laughs) (laughs) and So this is particularly close to home for me because I come from, I believe, the most chicken-producing state in the continental U.S. Yeah. Uh, You know, Tyson, Simmons, uh, used to be Peterson Farms. Uh, All the major chicken providers are based in a very small area of northwest Arkansas.
0: Mm -hmm. Yep. I remember that because my state sued your state because all your chicken poop was ruining our water. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it was allegedly ruining your life uh, <laughs>
0: um, but it's not just chickens it's what we've done to them because we're terrible human beings
1: right and so <laughs> the, the oh. fun fact out of this paper <laughs> is there are 23 billion chickens at any given time on the oh, planet
0: unbelievable. That's unbelievable
1: the second most numerous bird is 1.5 million so 23 billion 1.5 million okay so that's a big difference Mm -hmm. and if you were to put all of the chickens together they have a combined mass greater than every other bird on the planet combined
0: that's unbelievable i almost stopped reading this i got a little bit depressed (laughs) at that
1: (laughs) and most of the chickens only live for five to nine weeks
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) Or at least
1: broilers do. Uh, I mean, of course, laying chickens, uh, you know, it's a little bit different. Wild chickens, of course, are different. Uh, But broilers that we raise for meat production, yeah, five to nine weeks is their lifespan.
0: Yeah. Why is that? Why do they only live that long? Because they couldn't physically live longer than that without serious intervention on our parts because we've bred them to be so meaty.
1: Yeah, so I mean, they actually have genetic modifications through breeding that make them eat like crazy. They grow millimeters a week, mm-hmm. uh, and they're five times bigger than their, their average wild ancestor.
0: That's unbelievable. The pictures of this average wild ancestor, the <laughs> so awesomely named, um, what is he, the red jungle fowl? <laughs>
1: Right? Uh, RJF.
0: Yes, the RJF. Those comparison pictures are unreal. They're teeny tiny compared to broiler chickens.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you think about uh, these chickens, I mean, we we want the the meat off them. We want to have fewer things, animals to take care of. Uh, So, yes, it makes sense to have them meatier. Uh, And, you know, I know that the joke around... Uh, at some point was, you know, if they could breed a chicken so that it had more chicken wings for you oh. know, chicken wing places to buy, they would. Oh. Uh, so so true. there's there's a production element and efficiency element of we need to feed all these people. But there's also the element of these things have to live in climate controlled houses and they're growing so fast their bone structure can't really support them for more than their 5 to 9 week lifespan.
0: Right, yeah, exactly. And and that exact fact is one of the reasons that or these authors are saying, yeah, bring on the anthropocene because we've fundamentally changed a animal and that's one of those things, you know, at the new epics are brought on by all those things I mentioned before which cause extinctions or changes in animals you know dinosaurs are dead bring on the Cenozoic and this is a the broiler represents an animal that humans have fundamentally changed and that could be recorded in their bones that would eventually become fossilized in the future
1: oh yeah and I mean what's really incredible is okay so humans have been domesticating and eating chickens for about 8,000 years Mm -hmm. but the meaty broiler, uh, that was a product of post-World War II, uh, like, you know, in the fifties is kind of when that became a thing.
0: Oh, this is terrible. Wasn't there like some kind of like science decathlon to figure this out? What they call it, the chicken of tomorrow program.
1: Right. Which, (laughs) so post-World War II, you know, we just had atomic bomb success, uh, we have mastered all of the natural sciences and are putting them to work for the world of tomorrow. Uh <laughs> it, it's very much captured if you go to you know, Disneyland in that uh mm-hmm. what well, what's the what's the ride called? Is it the world of tomorrow?
0: I thought so, yeah.
1: I, I think so, yeah. So it it's we have some scientific hubris at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh I'm not gonna say that's still not the case. Nope. <laughs> and uh we also well Baby boomers.
0: Yep, thanks. Guys.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we we needed to feed all of these baby boomers from uh, folks that came back from World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, they started breeding these larger chickens, and in that pretty short time span of you know, seventy years, we fundamentally fundamentally altered a species,
0: and therefore new geologic epoch.
1: And so when. Having lived around chicken plants and chicken houses my whole life, uh, a lot of the parts of the chicken after slaughter are incinerated or anaerobically digested or used in other processes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, blood meal, bone meal, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, of course, a lot of chickens go to, you know, rotisseries and have bones in them and Mm -hmm. we eat it. And what do we do with the bones? them away. <laughs> yeah, so we're gonna have landfills that are layers of uh, plastic, silicon, and chicken bones. <laughs>
0: yep, exactly. <laughs> and and that's one of the things that is sort of a strata, right? We're stratifying these landfills, and you could literally go back through that strata. You could core a landfill and tell how long it's been there based on you know the newspaper dates on the bottom layer. And that's one of those things that geologists are trying to get as an identifier. That's real creepy.
1: Yeah. I mean, instead of a hanging basin or something like you see out here in Colorado, <laughs> future <laughs> formation can be a landfill.
0: That's right. Exactly. Oh, it's terrible, but so true. So, uh, yeah.
1: This was a pretty interesting paper. I mean, I I, I love chicken as much as the next person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I was surprised that it is rapidly uh, approaching and predicted to outpace pork. Uh,
0: yeah, that that actually really surprised me, too. Um, I didn't realize that chicken wasn't consumed everywhere on such large quantities, but it's not.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was surprised that pork was number one.
0: Yeah, I was surprised uh, about that, too.
1: I... I I guess I didn't suspect it to be beef because beef is not uh, eaten in a lot of places and it's a red meat. So a lot of people are not so hot on beef right now, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, we love our bacon apparently.
0: Yeah, we do. (laughs) America. Uh, Well, we love our chicken wings too, obviously. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Bacon wrapped
1: chicken wings. That's the solution.
0: Oh, that's coming next.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, now that we've thoroughly offended uh, <laughs> probably a large section of our listening audience.
0: Uh, yep. Yeah, sorry, you guys. <laughs> uh,
1: this this is a pretty interesting paper, and it's in an open access journal, so you can go download it, read through it, and have a look at some of these figures of where chickens came from, what their average size was. And uh, as they would say in Monty Python, you know, look at the bones. Uh, <laughs> It's a, a, a really incredible difference in figure four.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting.
1: <laughs> well, if you have a comparison of chicken bone sizes or your favorite meat preference, you can send that along <laughs> with any feedback to us. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us?
0: Email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman at Shannon Doolin or at Don't Panic Geo. Uh, you can hang out with us in the Slack chat room on the Software Underground Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate you making this happen. If you're interested in supporting us, go to patreon.com slash Geo.
1: And until next week, remember, don't panic.
0: It's not an exact science.